This is a CBC Podcast. Whenever I get out of the city, I always love looking up at the stars. Not only do they look cool, but seeing the vast expanse of space, space, always brings up a really big question for me. Why is the night sky so dark? Because if NASA is right, and there are trillions of stars in the sky, then shouldn't the sky just constantly just be bombarded with the starlight? I know that light can travel pretty far in space. Like, guys, the sun is around 150 million kilometers away. And not only does the light still get here, the light is still strong enough to just burn us, too. So what is in between all these stars? It can't just be black holes just constantly just, like, sucking up all the light. Why can't I see the light of trillions of stars when I look up at the night sky? Why is space so dark? Ty asks why. I'm Ty, and this is my podcast, Ty Asks Why. There are just so many good questions out there that are just lingering, waiting to be answered. How does a song get stuck in your head? What is deja vu? When the dinosaurs died, how did other animals survive? What are animals saying to each other? What is the science of bullying? And why is space so dark if it's filled with so many stars? (laughs) Okay, so you have a question. So I don't want to brag, but I recently won an award and I got to go to this big ceremony in New York. And the thing is, while I was there, I got to meet my personal hero. My name is Neil deGrasse Tyson and I'm your personal astrophysicist. So if you don't know, Neil deGrasse Tyson is an amazing astrophysicist and just a generally really smart dude. He's the reason I got really into space and the inspiration that gave me this question, you guys. I kinda, kinda need to ask him it, you know? So, Neil deGrasse Tyson, why is space so dark? Oh, that's a deep question. Space is dark because the universe is expanding. That's why space is dark. It's expanding and it's finite. Because if the sight line through space ends on a star, then that intensity of that starlight would be the brightness of that spot. But most places you look do not land on a star. So the expansion dilutes starlight. And not only that, we don't live in an infinite universe. Because if it were infinite, eventually your sight line would land on a star. And if it did that, the whole night sky would be ablaze with starlight. But it's not. Okay, guys, I'm trying to play it cool, but, you know, just talk to Neil deGrasse Tyson, so it's a pretty big deal. The reason we see darkness instead of all starlight everywhere is because the universe is expanding, so the starlight is moving away from us. And also because the universe is finite, If we look in a certain direction, there might not just be a star there. But that's some big, confusing, really works your mind answers. So I have 
a lot of follow-up questions. I have to get some more answers. But Neil was busy doing amazing astrophysics stuff, so I went to visit my other personal astrophysicist. Heidi White at the University of Toronto to help me see what's going on with all this light in the cosmos. Here we go. All right, now let's turn this on. We're on the roof of the Astronomy Building in downtown Toronto in a warm, pretty clear, really windy night. Well, it, look, it looks like you're about to like fire a laser. We're just firing up the telescope to check out some bright space objects that are close to us. Look, Ty, do you see that? Wait, let's move it a little bit. You see this? Oh, hello. Let me move it up so you can see it. Hello, friend. You see that? Yeah. That's Jupiter. And do you see these things? Yeah. Those There's are moons. moons. We found moons. Let's go. Heidi tells me that I'm not alone in wondering why everything around my new pal Jupiter is so dark. 300 years ago, apparently, there was this dude named Wilhelm Olber who asked the same question. You know, the observing that we're doing right now is very similar to the night sky observing that Olber did. Olber was a doctor during the day, and at night he turned, like, the roof of his house into an observatory, and he would go out at night, just like we are, and study what he could see in the solar system. So because Olber wondered why the sky was so dark, apparently they named the question after him, calling it Olber's Paradox. Basically, the paradox is that if the universe is infinitely big, infinitely old, and just infinite in general, as they believed in the 1700s, then the whole sky should appear to be super bright all the time. But it isn't. And we know now, as my boy Neil said, the universe isn't infinitely big, neither is it infinitely old. So why does that change the brightness of the sky? What do you know about our universe? and how long it's been around. 13.5 billion years, like 13.6 now? Yeah, it's close, about 13.8, yeah. So we know that our universe had a beginning. And do you know what that beginning was? A big bang. It was not a bang, really. It's more just a very wet inflation. It just went really big. There was no big explosion or anything. It just kind of inflated like a balloon very quickly. Yeah, that's a really good analogy, actually, to, to visualize the expansion of space-time. One really good thing you can do is take a balloon and put a bunch of dots on it, and then blow up the balloon, and you start to see as you put more air into it. That's sort of what's happening in space-time. Things are moving further and further away from one another. But this is important in the context of understanding the, the answer to Olber's paradox, because... What this means is that things haven't always been the way they look right now. The speed of light is fixed, and what that means is that if we look far enough away, what we're effectively doing is looking back in time. In that way, telescopes can actually be time machines because the most distant star's light in the universe hasn't had time to actually travel through space because it's been expanding to actually reach us. The speed of light is 300,000 kilometers a second. So the light from Jupiter takes 30 minutes to reach us here on Earth. So when we see it, we're seeing Jupiter as of 30 minutes ago. And then there's light in the universe that is 13.8 billion light years away. This is the stuff made in the Big Bang, guys. So 
We can't see it yet, because, you know, we're not that old yet. Maybe by the time I'm in high school, I'll be seeing light from a random star that I can't see today, because it'll finally be getting to my eyes. But also maybe not, because, well, as the space-time continue balloon just inflates and inflates further, it'll just take even longer for that light to reach our eyes. Every part of the universe is expanding. It's expanding at a very high rate, and it appears to be accelerating in its expansion. And so, if the universe is expanding, that's producing an effect that we call redshift. Redshift is this effect by which uh, objects moving away from us, the wavelength of the light that they emit, it becomes stretched out. And what happens is that as this wavelength becomes stretched out, the frequency decreases, and it shifts that light to redder and redder wavelengths. At some point, objects are going to be far away from us enough that they're moving away from us fast enough that that redshift is going to shift them right out of the part of the electromagnetic spectrum that our eyes can see. This is some deep, confusing stuff, so just try to bear with me here. Basically, we see a light as a wavelength, and when that light is moving away from us, it gets stretched. And the more stretched out a wavelength is, the more red it looks, so our eyes would see it as more and more red. But at some point, it'll just get so stretched out that we actually can't see it. It's called infrared, and it just goes into a part of the spectrum we can't see. So there could be stuff in the darkness between the stars, and we just can't see it because it's moving away from us so quickly. Maybe if I could get closer to these stars, I'd be able to get a clearer picture of what's going on here. But how would I do that? Head down into the basement. So we have an inflatable planetarium, and so what you're hearing is actually the fans that pump air into the planetarium to keep it inflated. It looks like the Swedish berries from Maynard's, but it's like all black and massive. So kind of. Say it looks like a kind of like an igloo. It has a bouncy the castle. Just it does no look like a bouncy castle. <laughs> all right. So maybe what we could do is we can lift off from Earth. Zoom. Whoa, whoa, it's awesome. It's just very weird because like you zoom out a little bit and then it just pwah, orbits in your face. We're now looking at Earth at this moment. I'm gonna hand you the controller, okay? We're gonna have you zoom out as far as we can go in the universe. So we're zooming past our solar system. Like you can definitely see light during the belt of the Milky Way, but other than that, it still seems kind of dark. So keep going. Oh, why is it so bright? Oh, th oh, things are moving. Wow, what? So what Heidi is showing me is that the constellations that look like a six-year-old's poorly connected connect the dots here on Earth look totally different when you zoom out beyond our solar system and see them in the third dimension. From Earth, they all look so close together, and you know, you connect one and two, three and four, and boom, you get yourself a horse. But when you get into their neighborhood, they're super far away from each other. So those constellations that we see in the night sky are 2D projections of stars in 3D space. And so as you zoom out a little bit more, you can start to see the actual connections that we've made from our perspective on Earth. Can you go in a little more? That's the Milky Way. 
is our galaxy. This is the galaxy that hosts our solar system, our, our home on Earth. You can see that the Earth and our solar system is sort of situated, if you imagine the center of our galaxy to be the big city, we're kind of out in the suburbs, right? You can see that we're further out in the Milky Way. It's like a fried egg, but it got like horribly burnt. But then the big question is, it's very bright, like the, especially the center, it's very bright. So then how can we only see a very small portion of the, of like the things we see in our light, night sky with all the constellations and such? That's actually a great question. So why does it look like a streak on the night sky? And it looks like, like a, like a disc here, like a big circle, right? So when we are looking through on our night sky, when we see the Milky Way, this is what we're seeing we're seeing the projection of it through the disk of the Milky Way because we're inside the disk of the Milky Way. Oh, it's being a jerk and it's just blocking everything off. Picture this. If our solar system is the size of a quarter, pretty small, then the Milky Way is the size of the United States of America. So the Milky Way is shaped like an America-sized fried egg and we're just literally just a tiny coin in the suburbs of the egg white. And that's also why when you look away from the city's bright lights, the Milky Way in the sky looks kind of like a band. And that's us just looking across the egg white at more egg white. Back at the planetarium, I'm now fully zoomed out as far as we can go to get a picture of our universe. The Milky Way, our fried egg, is now just a tiny dot, like pinhead dot. There's a whole bunch of other pinhead dots filling up the screen. Ballpark, how many dots are we looking at right now? Trillions. In the observable universe, there's trillions of galaxies. So the lesson I want you to take away from this, kids, is that we're small and nothing we ever do matters. Woo. I think, personally for me, I find that relaxing. It's a good thing. You know? <laughs> I failed the test. Well, nothing. It doesn't matter. Woo! So to recap all this, there is a whole bunch of stuff out there in the universe emitting its light. Some of it's being sucked away from us so fast in the expansion of space that the light is now invisible to us. Some of it's being blocked by us being inside the egg white of the Milky Way, and some of it just hasn't had enough time to reach us yet because it's billions on billions on billions of light years away. That explains why it's so hard to see all the stars and the planets and all that stuff so far away from Earth. Hard, I said, but not impossible. I think it's really cool to stand there and think about the fact that there are so many planets going around those other stars and just try to imagine what might they be like. This is Dr. Jessie Dotson. Hi. Hi. She's thinking about planets around the stars because that's her job. She's a project scientist at NASA's Ames Research Center. She's one of the many people who look out into the darkness of space, the world beyond our solar system, to try to figure out what's actually out there using a space telescope called Kepler. 
So Kepler is a spacecraft that we launched just a little over 10 years ago. And the purpose of Kepler was to look for planets around other stars. Um, we did that for about nine and a half years. And uh, last fall, it, the spacecraft's fuel ran out. And now we are continuing to dig through the data to find all the planets that we can and learn all we can about the stars we observed. What exactly does Kepler look at? So the way we find planets with Kepler is we stare at stars. In the original four years, we stared at 150,000 stars at a time, and we looked at them almost continuously for four years. And what we were looking for were little dips in the light coming from those stars. Oh, because that means a planet just passed in between Kepler and the star. Exactly. Well, you see one dip and you start to get interested. You see a second dip and you get really interested. And when you see a third dip and they're happening kind of like at a steady beat, at a steady period, then we get really interested. We do some other checks before we then declare it, yay, this is a confirmed planet. This has like, been like a dream of mine to talk to somebody about this for like seven years. So just I might be a little bit taken aback. But how many, you said that you've seen a whole bunch of stars, but how many planets of all these stars have you confirmed? Okay, so I checked the number for you this morning. And from the Kepler spacecraft, we have confirmed 2,702 planets around other stars. (laughs) Cool. I think it's really cool and exciting. Okay, good, because I, oh my God, I think that's awesome too. You know, we have found planets that are unlike anything in our solar system. We have found planets that orbit two stars at the same time. We have found planets that are so close to their host star that uh, they're just, you know, thousands of thousands of degrees. Their years last, you know, two days. Um, It's just the the diversity of what we've seen, it, it almost is beyond what you can imagine if all you knew was our own solar system. And I think that's just so cool to realize how different and exciting planets can be. But those are the planets. What about our stars? There's a couple things. One, we can learn a lot about the stars, whether or not they have a planet in front of them, by just looking at how the star's light varies. And particularly with big red giant stars, we can see the variations that are kind of like the the star stuff waffling or like sloshing around. And it sloshes around in particular frequencies that actually tell us things about what's going on inside of that star. But something else is we've looked at a bunch of galaxies outside of our own. And looking at those galaxies, we have seen supernova go off. And so supernova are stars that have... Uh, essentially reach the end of their life, and they explode. Bang, stars! Yeah. And with Kepler, we got to see how that explosion started. And you can learn a lot about an explosion if you can see the start. It really sounds like it could be even cooler than the explosion itself, just seeing how the sun itself just kind of just dies and just emits this final burst of explosion juice. Now, of course, with Kepler, what we see is we see this little teeny tiny point of light get brighter, 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 and then fainter, fainter, fainter. 
one thing I do know about these bang stars in space is that sometimes they can make these black holes. Does that mean this dark space between the stars could just be a whole bunch of black holes? So black holes suck everything in that gets to them. But the thing is, they're pulling stars and dust and gas in. And as all this stuff gets pulled in by the black hole, you get stars and gas and dust that are much closer together than in most other places in the universe. And then they start to bump into each other and heat each other up. And so all this energy that you're seeing is the energy that doesn't get sucked into the black hole, but is created because the black hole is pulling all these things in close to it. Once anything goes into the black hole, whether it be a star or a dust particle or a light photon, it never comes back out again. Whoa, have you ever seen one of these black holes using Kepler? We have seen what people call active galactic nuclei or AGNs. And what that is, is that is there's a black hole in the center and stuff is being pulled into the black hole. But some of the stuff goes into the black hole. Some of the stuff bounces around and it creates really bright flashes of light. And so we have observed those bright flashes of light. So light even helps us understand darkness. That's so weird because, you know, you're using the opposite of something to understand the opposite of the thing. So how important is light then to your to studying outer space? So light is absolutely critical to studying outer space. Almost everything we know about outer space, we've learned by looking at light at different wavelengths and different energies and trying to figure out what that light is telling us. Well, okay, you know, like I, I didn't really know what else I was expecting, but you know, light's, light's pretty cool. Thank you so much. Well, it's been a lot of fun, Ty. I think that we should like keep in touch though, pen pals, please. Uh, you bet, Ty. Pen pals from NASA. It's, pr- it's pretty great, guys. It's pretty great. Now when I look up at the dark sky, I can now really appreciate all the different things that make it so I'm just not blinded by a bombardment of light, you know? It's also a little uneasy that there could be death lasers coming towards us. It would just go under our radar, our poor eye radar. And, you know, I have this whole appreciation for these stars and the planets, the dark stuff between them. It's just kind of cool because, you know, since space is so dark, it makes the stars stand out that much more. Space is cool.
thank you guys so much for listening. I'm Ty Poole. The show is produced by Veronica Simmons and Amanda Buckowitz. Our digital producer is Judy Goo. Today, my guests were Heidi White, Dr. Jesse Dawson, and special thanks to Tina Verma and, of course, Neil deGrasse Tyson, guys. Woo! Still kind of can't believe I did that. Theme music is by Johnny Spence. And another big thanks to Johnny for helping me write and record the Dark Space song. Next time on Ty Asks Why, catchy songs. When you think about it, how could we ever have remembered the alphabet if it wasn't for the song? Till next time, I'm Ty. Keep looking up. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.